0: Drink and Read Presents, Dune, Part 3, pages 106 to 160. I got the sun in the morning and the dune at night. Hello, Dune Arenas, and welcome back to another episode of Drink and Read. I am Jonathan Kwiatkowski, your loving tour guide to this desert planet that is Arrakis and Frank Herbert's Dune. If you just tuned in, this is Drink and Read, a literature recap podcast where I get a little drizzy drunk and read the words so you don't have to. If you're just tuning in, there's still ample time to pick up a copy of Dune and join us. I do believe that you could do that faster than Baron Harkonnen jumping into his hover suit when he hears the dinner bill. But anyways, here's a little recap of what you missed. So, on the last episode, we saw how the Atradian clan of Paul, Jessica, and Duke Leto, plus their um, attache, arrived on the desert planet of Arrakis and tried to get the lay of the land. Lady Jessica is worried about her husband's imminent death, as it's been predicted by everyone and their sister around her. While she was redecorating their new digs, she got introduced to Shadout slash Mapes, a new servant that gifted her with a Chris knife because she said that Lady Jessica is the mother of their new messiah. You gotta love when indoctrination of someone's fate does the groundwork for you. Next, Lady Jessica discovered a secret room in the house that was full of flora, fauna, and a warning. A.K.A. your family's in danger, girl. Good God, get out. Just as she was piecing these blues clues together, Paul Atreides was dealing with a death threat in his bedroom. And no, that's not my dating profile bio. It was just a mini murder drone that Paul managed to crush as Mapes walked in. He said, I did this deed for you, go tell my mom and tell my dad, but make sure no one else knows, there's probably an assassin somewhere in the house. Paul tells Lady Jessica she's like, shit, who do you trust around here? And the doubt has begun to seep in among the family. Who could have tried this stunt among your father's friends? Could it have been Gurney? Could it have been Duncan, Idaho? The Mentat Thufir Hawat? Or is it, yes, it's the very obvious Dr. Yue. Dr. Yue, in trying to get revenge for his dead wife, is going to sell out the Atradian clan to his arch-rivals, the Harkonnen, for some reason. All the men besides Paul suspect Jessica is behind this, and Jessica suspects every man except Paul and Dr. Yue. Lastly, Duke Leto arrived on the scene playing Elsa from Frozen, concealing not feeling. All he's thinking about is someone tried to murder my son, but he can't let his men see that. So it's business as usual trying to convert the Freeman to his side while overthrowing the vast galaxy-wide Emperor rule. Break that wheel. And that's what you missed on Dune. Now, before we dive into today's epigraphs, I just want to remind everyone this is Drink and Read, the podcast, so we are doing a lot of reading. What are we drinking? Well, today is a tribute to the first episode of Season 2 of Euphoria. If you haven't caught up with the show, please do yourself a favor and watch it, but remember, don't be triggered. There's a lot of shit that these teens get up to. I'm not going to say how it's involved, but today we are drinking from a nice-sized bottle of Tito's Homemade Vodka. This both takes me back to season one, warm peace of Drink and Read, and reminds me of the times that I connected with my father, which is what young Paul Atreides will be doing today with Duke Leto. Just two guys being dudes in the desert. What more could you ask for? And with that, we've got a handful of epigraphs to get to. Let's dive into epigraph 12 of Dune. The Princess Arulon, who is our shady little narrator, gives us a little more elucidation. When Paul was invited to the first of his father's staff conferences, there was an inscription he remembered. These words were originally attended for those leaving the planet Arrakis, but they hit close to home because Paul has just had a near brush with death. A failed assassination really does make the heart grow fonder, doesn't it? The inscription translates to, Oh, you who know what we suffer here, do not forget us in your prayers. Doesn't that just want to make you ditch the Live, Laugh, Love sign hanging up in your kitchen and put that up instead? Duke Leto is in the middle of a staff meeting with Paul and struggling still to withhold his anger. They tried to kill my son! Paul has slipped the news to Daddy that there was an attempt at his life, and Duke Leto blames Thufer Hawat, but Paul suggests that the call was not coming from inside the house. Paul, for a 15-year-old, is wise beyond his years and says that they should trust Thufir-Hawat's wisdom, being that he's been with the family for so long. Duke Leto recognizes this maturity, thanks Paul, and says that Thufir-Hawat will probably be harder on himself than we could ever be. His ears must have been burning because the Mentat Thufir-Hawat busts in and goes, Take anything, fire me, take my life, I deserve to die for not protecting you. Duke Leto suggests Thufir chill, and says this plan is probably too simple to even predict. Uh, if it's that simple, why the hell are you still on this planet? They go ahead with the staff meeting, and the officers and Gurney are called in because Duke Leto trusts them. Please help yourself to craft services, there's coffee and cake provided. Sweet! The Atradians aren't all good though, because they're making invasion jokes. But the general consensus still stands that the Freemen are the solution and the allies that they need in this fight. We must be doing something right because they've given us intel and showered gifts on Lady Jessica and Paul Atreides. Maybe because they're totally thinking that, you know, that's the messiah and his mother. There's no deceit detected within their gifts, though. Duncan Idaho arrives and confirms that there are way more freemen than initially predicted. The one cave system, or siech that he was visiting had close to 10,000 people in it alone. Duclido is informed about the smuggling of the spice, Duclido says, let the smugglers smuggle, as long as they don't keep too close an eye on me and my plans. We're gonna take a large portion of our already measly profits and set it aside for the emperor, so that way if anyone suggests that we were doing anything against the emperor, we can reveal this fund and say no, in fact, we were storing away more money for him than initially intended. This is a win-win for us because Baron Harkonnen will be pissed. It makes the Atreidian side look all the more better. The Harkonnens took out 10 billion Solaris out of here every third of a year. That's a lot of dosh in Dune terms. On their way out the door, the Harkonnens said that they left nothing but good intentions, but there's a lot of intrigue here because the equipment that they left is almost always broken down, so they can't really harvest spice without the spice factories working. Another problem is that the space skill is even being cold towards the Atreidean side, setting them up for failure. But Duke Leto is of the mindset, if there is no justice, we will make our own justice. We're gonna tear down that bitch of a bearing wall and put a spice factory where a spice factory ought to be. The other houses are complacent and think that Atreides is too good for their own good. Those goody goodies. To see how the spice melange is made, a projection of a harvester factory is shown. This spice factory is dubbed Old Maria, and working here is a punishment job when the Harkonnens ruled. Now you may be thinking, we have the technology, we have space shields, so why not put a space shield around this harvester factory? Well, space shields are deadly in the desert as their rhythmic pulses instantly attract the dangerous and large sandworms. Just like me at the club, when that rhythm starts blasting, I come running. The Frenmen, notably, never use shields, perhaps they have another way of nullifying the beast for Hawat's job is to find a solution to the shield problem. The attention then shifts to a carryall, a machine-like balloon that transports spice. Factories to mine, it's a real get-in-get-out situation. They drop the factory off, it gathers the spice before the worms come, and if a worm is sighted, the carryalls lift the spice factory up in the air and move on to somewhere else. There's a raunchy sex joke aimed at the Harkonian here that they're always getting in and getting out as well. (laughs) Ha ha ha, very funny. Duke Leto just wants to keep the Fremen happy by not disturbing their planet too much. We must develop something akin to desert power, that rumored power that we hear about that the Freemen are always chatting about here. We all have to work fast, harvest before we are attacked, and assemble a battalion of Freemen to help us out in our cause. Thufir Hawat has not been sitting on his hands the whole time. He is one of the most deadly assassins in the book, and he has eliminated enough that there are three Harkonnen cells remaining on the planet, about a hundred men or so. These Harkonnens are hiding among the Freemen, posing as Freemen, and Paul thinks that this will only make those remaining fight even harder since the numbers are so against them. Gurney has persuaded about 286 sandworkers to stay with the Atreidian side. Duncan Idaho says a freeman revealed this information at the cost of his life and his Chris Knife in hand. One imposing tall freeman ushers his way into the room. This is Stilgar, chief of the siege where Duncan Idaho is staying. He's pissed because it's one of the many freeman traditions that only close friends can look upon the Chris Knife of another freeman. This dead Freeman went by the name of Turok, like the video game, but it's an honorable activity. Leto initially plays the situation off coolly, and still, until Stilgar spits at him, but here on Arrakis this is a sign of respect, as moisture is all that important. So next time someone hocks a loogie in your face, consider it a great blessing and honor. But I joke, you are a stranger in strange lands here, you should respect the traditions of those who live there. Duncan Idaho who's lived with the Fremen for a long time say we thank you for the gift of your body's moisture. Duncan Idaho has received the exclusive privilege of being asked to join the siege and thus making him a dual citizen of both Arrakis and Caladan. Duke Leto tells Duncan Idaho you have far more experience in this with me make the decision that best fits you. Stilgar sweetens the pot saying that Duncan Idaho can keep that Chris knife and once he's been purified he can both be Freeman and Tradian. This Chris Knife is ever important as Leto reminds Duncan he needs to continue recruiting these freemen. The Harkonnen for some reason have a reward of a million Solaris for just one Chris Knife. We find out that it's made of a ground sandworm's tooth. But why do the Harkonnen want this? Interesting. Duke Leto's men are looking for bases and equipment. Maybe the ecologist kinds will know. On the other hand, if we take what the freemen own, they would be upset, and then, as these things are sacred to them, they might consider not joining our cause. Um, yeah, duh. Duke Leto is on the warpath, and Paul suggests that he see some common sense. Um, remember this, because it will not be the same situation come later on in the novel. But Duke Leto listens to his son and says, Do it gently, I just want to know if they exist and if they're willing to help us. Gurney leaves on a quote, and Duke Leto is like, Someday I'm gonna catch him without a quote, and he'll appear undressed. Oh ho, 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 ho. Paul is not a-feeling-so-good. He's in his feelings and thinks that everyone around him is going to die. Thufir Hawat seems very troubled by something that he won't mention, and Leto paces like a caged animal. Come on, War and Peace Parallel. Paul says, hey, dad, um, maybe Thufir Hawat is the traitor that we're discussing, but Duke Leto says, we've already talked this through. I'm done with that. Paul thinks back to the Reverend Mother and her warning, suggesting that there's nothing he can do to save the life of his father, aka, hope that will is drawn up, Paul. Epigraph 13, A Arulon elucidates. When Paul and his family are riding through the streets of Arrakeen, some freemen called out their word for Messiah which is Mahdi, but at the time, it appeared to be more of a question than a fact or statement. More attention is on Lady Jessica for two reasons. The first, Lady Jessica is turning looks in the city of Arakeen, and the second, she is Benny Gesserit. Duke Leto sits down to have a conversation with Thufer Hawat. There's not many men and the financial means to spare in this situation, and Leto thinks that Thufur distrusts him, maybe with all the accusations that are flying about recently. You are holding something back from me, my dear old friend. We've been through it all. Nothing is too taboo to share, that is, unless you bring up my age. Thufur shares the tiniest, little itty-bitty piece of a Harkonnen note that his intel had previously discovered. The note is addressed to dear Duke Lido saying, Honey, you got a storm coming for you. And that storm is gonna strike a blow delivered by a loving hand. Bum-bum-bum! Thufur says, I bet it ain't me, but you know who it might be? Lady Jessica, j'accuse. Duke Leto lets spill a little misogyny, saying, I know my woman and she would never kill me. It reminds me of the unfortunate, untimely death of many sugar daddies in this world. Duke Leto does see common sense, though. He says, Jessica's been with me for 16 years. This is a really long-term plan if she's been thinking about this for that long a time. She could have poisoned my drink, stuck a stiletto in me at night. Why does she wait this long if she is the traitor? Thufur does say, with all his many calculations going on in his mentad brain, that this is just one interpretation of who will destroy you. Leave it up to me, I'll get to the bottom of this. Duke Lido says, good, make sure that you don't cause a scene, and keep that going on behind the scenes. Before Duke Lido goes on a constitutional to detox, Thufur shows him a clip of Paul riding through the streets of Arakeen. The residents are shouting the word Mahdi translates to Messiah as Paul rides by. Thufir says that this is something interesting they have to keep their eyes on, but Duke Leto is so overwhelmed by what's going on in his life right now, he can't think about this. He goes to the room where Paul is sleeping, he maneuvers himself onto the balcony and has an introspective moment. Damn those confounded Harkonnens! Damn them all! They drive me to drink! But this reprieve is actually sweet, because something that does distract Duke Leto is the beauty of the desert world Arrakis. He sees the second moon rising, Random guard number four pops his head in and says, It is a beautiful day, isn't it, sir? And I feel like Duke Leto's about to go, Yes, run down to Fezziwigs and catch me the Christmas goose. Duke Leto looks down and out to the courtyard and sees that the residents are harvesting morning dew for its moisture. And then he's kind of disgusted by this planet and its strange traditions. I'm sure if the roles were reversed, Duke Leto, you'd be sucking up that dew like it was mountain dew. In our shortest epigraph to date, being only 3.5 pages long, a Rulon elucidates, Nothing is a bigger buzzkill than finding out your father is just made of flesh and bone. A man is just a man, and a chair is still a chair, even when there's no one sitting there. Duke Leto comes clean to Paul, saying that I may be doing a hateful thing, but if you were in this situation, you would too. Paul's watching a video clip of himself, and this messiah term being thrown at him through the streets by the freemen. And then while all this is going on, Duke Lido suggests to Paul that the Harkonnen are doing this in order for us to both distrust Jessica, which we clearly do not. She must even be fooled by this as well. So if I appear to be a little bit more stony around her, I'm just doing it to make it like seem like their plan is working. But we do love your mother, Lady Jessica, and I do not hold any blame on her. So I guess that's progression. But another flaw in having this plan work is that they genuinely have to hurt jessica's emotions to make it seem real and paul goes fine i'll do this it's not the best plan but i will keep this secret duke leto acknowledges that yes of course it's not the best plan but he's tired we're all tired we're going to have to go through with it paul worries that in his father's tiredness he knows or at least feels that his death is incoming so r.i.p duke leto then we go on a long, depressing degradation of the house system, but not Atreides. He says, like, Dad, you're a great leader. It's just that the chips were stacked against us this time. It's given me real, it's okay, Dad, Bobby, energy. They're still on the plan that they have to get word out to the people of Arrakis, the Fremen, in order to succeed in overthrowing the Harkonnen rule. And there are some advantages to living here on Arrakis. One such is that since spices and everything, it makes you immune to some very common poisons. And seeing how these people live day to day is actually giving us a better view on moral and ethical dilemmas. Should we be a worse person because we're better off? No, we should treat everyone equally because look what they're having to suffer through. And things work differently, but they are similar at the same time. On caladan we featured sea and air power, but here, young Paul, you must learn how to use desert power. And whenever we hear desert power, I think of Frau Bluhar from <laughs> Young Frankenstein. Hey. <Yay! sighs> And one last sage piece of advice from his father, Paul, you gotta sacrifice all your self-respect, otherwise that power is gonna go to all of our heads and destroy us. Power and fear will rule. They are the tools for statecraft. And there's a lot of quotes in this three-page chapter. He also wonders if Paul can capitalize off this whole messiah thing, and we get introduced to the interplanetary ecologist, Dr. Kynes. We may seem like we're breezing through today's chapters, because here is the last, but epigraph 15 is a long one, so strap in, folks. A Roulan elucidates that in this time when her father, the Padishah Emperor, took her by the hand, when using her mother's Bene Gesserit training, she sensed that he was disturbed. The pair, or at least she, gazes at a portrait of Duke Leto. To her, the picture of Duke Leto and the visage of her father look very similar, um, even though Padishah Emperor looks very good for 71 years old. She can feel in the weird cosmic university of things that the Padishah Emperor wishes that Duke Leto had been his son, but in fact, they're almost enemies and rivals. There is deep respect for this man and respect for each other. Some real blue blood shit. Dr. Kynes has been ordered to betray the Artradian family based on the legends of the Messiah and Mother Goddess, and despite being a man of science, he has heard this and thinks otherwise. He goes, I think I'll try and figure out the area that I'm walking into, then I'll make that decision. Screw the prophecy. I have agency. Dr. Kynes gives the old look over to the Artradian troops and goes, Psh, they think their shields will work here? They got a storm coming, honey. Dr. Kynes, the library is open the entire chapter, Duke Leto and Paul show up, he goes, "Ah, oh, they're just people, silly little prophecy. He has innate hatred to Gurney for being a lapdog. I'm positive he would read them all for not using enough seasoning in his cooking. It makes sense, and it fits, we get it. Dr. Kynes is supposed to lead House Atreides on an inspection of a spice mine, but he's not feeling it and feels belittled by them. I'm a paleontologist, after all. Kynes has a unique benefit of being accepted in both the Fremen and non-Fremen circles. Paul senses an innate power coming from Kynes. Everybody is strapping into their still suits, and Paul drops an OC Bible quote that makes kinds further suspect the prophecy, and this goes on far too long throughout the entire novel of Dune. Paul will say something, someone will react to, like, oh, that's in the prophecy, but is it in the prophecy? Yes, he is the one predicted that, I mean, there's no suspense here, we know. Uh, uh, fucking Rulon told us already. Kynes shrugs this off as a coincidence, but wouldn't you know, something else happens that makes him think prophecy. Kynes checks and explains stillsuits and notices that Paul wears his like he is a Fremen, uh, in a slip fashion at the ankles, despite this being the supposedly first time he's ever put on a stillsuit. Another sign or another coincidence? The stillsuits are so useful because they keep water loss to less than a thimble a day. And Duke Leto is using this scenario to kind of measure up Kynes. Where does his allegiance lay? And uh, Kynes isn't given anything to Duke Leto. This basically goes nowhere. It's a tough life here on Arrakis. You either steal water on the ground, or you adapt, or you die. Also, this desert planet is prone to sandstorms. Very dangerous to fly in. Remember that for later. I'm saying something will happen during one of these storms. Everybody's packed like sardines in these thopters, and Duke suggests to Gurney, how about a rousing flight song, Gurney? Gurney goes, oh, don't make me sing, pulls out his balalaika and starts singing. This song is entitled, I Am the Owl of the Desert. Lots of questions occur here from Leto and Paul, kind of getting the up and up from Kynes, asking about, has anyone ever walked the desert and survived? Kynes replies, never in the deep desert, no, it's kind of no man's land and you're doomed to death out there. Also, you gotta deal with these sandworms, and the only way you can do that is if you get to a rocky surface where the sandworms don't tread. The sandworms like to shake their booties to anything rhythmic as well, so if you walk in a straight line, in a rhythmic pattern, set off some jukeboxes, I don't know, put in your iPods, then the sandworms will come running towards you. At this point, only electrical shocks have been known to subdue the sandworms, and killing the worms would destroy the spice, as they are the manufacturers of said spice. Kine's pro tip for this situation is never travel alone, my lord, because you will probably die alone out here. They arrive at the spice factory, Delta Ajax Niner, which gathers spice till a worm gets close and then it is ballooned away to the next location. They're circling the factory, seeing how things run, and it turns out that a big sandworm is approaching beneath the sand, and everyone just watches this daily business. They're like, oh, the worm will get closer, but they're gonna mine till the last second, and then they'll balloon away. In this spice factory, it's common courtesy to give a little extra coin to those who spot the worm first, and it turns out that Duke Leto spotted this one with his Duke Leto eagle eyes. Kynes notices this and says, For a non-fremen, you sure do have special brand type eyes. And this gets Duke Leto some street cred among the workers. Duke Leto does another kindness and says, instead of giving the money to me, divide the money up between all the workers. The workers are like, this has never been done before. We've been treated like actual people. However, they have no time to ponder Leto's generosity as their PR carryalls are not showing up, much like me waiting for the Uber, and they need to get out of there fast. Duke Leto takes immediate action, says, We're riding in this minivan, we're gonna squeeze in all those workers and get away safely, but we gotta do it now! They drop in and only have nine minutes. Everyone gets out, the workers that can pack in get in without, you know, going over the weight limit of the plane, so I'd be left behind immediately. And Paul notices that the spice melange smells strongly of cinnamon. Duke Leto is great under pressure and says, get out all the extra baggage, well, emotional otherwise, and get everyone who can fit in. There's still no worm in sight, but it is coming. No sooner than them getting everyone into the thopter than a giant hole, aka the worm's mouth opens up and swallows the entire factory in one gulp. And y'all out there better not be making any jokes at my expense. The workers are thankful for Leto saving them, but some are still very religious and their traditions and customs are confusing, saying that we were ready to die either way if we were left behind. In fact, two of those workers stay behind and they're trying to make it out of the worm's reach. We don't know if they will survive, but they have means of uh, getting by out here that uh, non-Fremen do not. Leto asks to send a message back to pick these two up, kind of circle around when they get back to base or whatever, but the Fremen say that either way, if they live or if they die, they will not be in that location for long. Just how did they get around so quickly out here? Hmm. Paul eyes up everyone in the room and basically goes, You're a Fremen, you're a Fremen, you're a Fremen, you're a Fremen, unprompted, but this is another part of the prophecy. The Messiah will see the Fremen despite all disguises, and kinds. goes, hmm, I'm doing a full 180 crazy on Paul and his Duke dad. You know what? I kinda like this Duke Leto. And that's where we'll end for today, y'all. Well, today we had enough spills and thrills and chills on the planet of Arrakis. We saw how the spice melange is made, and even more. Next time, strap in for the dinner party from hell. And you know what? Those Harkonnens, they've been planning to throw these Atradians in front of the bus, and I think that their plans just might start next episode. Of course, if you're ready, willing, and able to keep up with our reading, next week you'll be assigned pages 161 to 205 in the Ace Trade paperback edition of Doom. Thank you, as always, dear listeners slash readers. And if you want to support me, Jonathan Kwiatkowski, a desperate, lonely boy and his pleas for stardom, then please feel free to check out my other podcasts, the first being Nightcaps at the Theater, where me and a couple buds check out a few movies and get a little drizzy drunk. And then if anime is more your forte or anime-adjacent things, feel free to check out Anime Was Not a Mistake, where myself and my co-host Dan Ryan put on our weeb hats and go for a dive every week. We'll be happy to see you there. Well, with that, I've got to go prepare some hors d'oeuvres for the dinner party from hell, and isn't it about time someone betrayed and massacred my entire family? Eh, I'll deal with that next week. Till then, remember, do not fear as it is the mind killer, and remember to drink and read responsibly. Thank you for listening to Drink and Read. Hosting for this podcast brought to you by Anchor. This podcast can also be found on Spotify, Pocket Cast, and more. If you have any thoughts or questions, or any beverage recommendations, please feel free to reach out to us on Drink and Read Pod at Instagram. Support of this podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.